Welcome to episode 29 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my sociable co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Today's episode is a special one. Not only because we're coming at this fresh off a trip to Fusion 360 Academy, but because we are once again joined by a friend of the podcast, Chris Lee. Gentlemen, how are you doing tonight? Doing great. How you doing, Winston? How you doing, Chris? Doing awesome, man. I am doing fantastically. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, glad, glad to have you here. So you guys uh, recuperated from all the travel and, <laughs> and basically the brain expansion of Portland? Recuperated is a relative term. I am physically recuperated, but mentally I am still like just my mind is racing with possibilities that I haven't yet explored. So uh, eventually the rest of me emotionally will settle down. Yeah. Um, yeah. The trip was, was great. Uh, it was such a short trip for us, you know, just like a two hour flight or anything. But yeah, my brain is still wrapping my head around some of the things that we learned over there that I didn't even think uh, was possible. So, so what did you, uh, I'm curious, like, what did you guys think about Fusion 360 Academy? This was the first year um, that they've done it in the U.S. I think it's been going on in other parts of the world. Uh, I think it started in Tokyo. Um, they may have had it in London or a few other places, but this was the inaugural U.S. event. Um, it's kind of curious, you know, Winston, you've been to AU. Uh, like, I my take on it was... It was all the best things that I got out of AU without all the extra stuff that really wasn't much use to me, like BIM and architecture and uh, you know film production products. You know, AU, I mean, Autodesk is a huge company, right? So they got a pretty broad uh, suite of offerings across many industries. Um, like this one was all fusion, <laughs> all CNC, all CAD CAM all day long for two days. And uh, sometimes it's kind of neat to expand into some of the areas, some of the products that you don't normally have a need to use just to learn something new, especially the industrial design stuff. But um, it's a lot more expensive than Fusion Academy. So like, I'll probably be going to this every year if they, if they have it annually. AU is always going to be, I'll have to really think about it. <laughs> so just kind of curious what your take was on it. It is so much more concentrated and distilled than AU for our interests. Um, I know like some of the sessions were similar, but just the fact that everything was like right there and like you could walk anywhere within five minutes and every session was something I wanted to see. Uh, it just felt so much um, more appealing to me because like I was legitimately torn between like multiple sessions sometimes and um, just at the last minute I would just duck into a different one. Um, the, what I miss from AU is the fact that their like show floor was huge. Um, and so even if you weren't interested in something, you could still sort of, um, browse or window shop what some of the other companies were showing off here. I feel like, although we had the, the, a really condensed mini factory experience with, the um, Daytron and MakerBot and making the, the little air quality sensors, I, I, kind of wish there was just a little more to browse. Um, but other than that, I mean, the the quality of the content that was there was exactly what I was looking for. How about you, Chris? 
Uh, yeah, this was actually my first Autodesk event, so um, definitely set the bar pretty high. I, I was shocked at, you know, first of all, how much we paid and what we got, you know, because we got really great food, uh, open bar, and also the content was like, you know, just like Winston said, I, I had difficulty picking classes because they were scheduled the same way. So we were, we, during the day, we'd have to figure out like, man, I really want to go to this class, but I want to really want to do surfacing. So. I think that's like a great experience because now I'm really looking forward to the recordings that they're going to release for the classes that I didn't get to take. Um, and for the ones that I did take, like, and I learned so much that I didn't even know existed. So I'm super stoked to kind of uh, try to practice all the things that we saw, uh, best we can at least. When you said shocked by the price, you mean on the, and the pleasant side, right? It was... Uh... Yeah, it's so cheap. I mean, yeah. this was like, you know, a hundred bucks or whatever. Uh, AU is like 1700 or something so it's it's ridiculous right it, I mean it's not ridiculous it's just ridiculous for me you know as being who I am and stuff so yeah it's harder to justify if if what you're looking for is you know the fusion and manufacturing content um, AU definitely has everything that was at fusion Academy but you're paying for a lot more right so um, that you're not going to take advantage of so yeah I, I kind of I'll probably end up doing like AU maybe every four or five years, or if something really you know big changes at, at Autodesk, I might go there uh, just to kind of keep up with it. But Fusion, you know, that's gonna be an annual pilgrimage for me if, uh, if like I said, if uh, Autodesk continues it next year. Um, yeah, it was hard to beat the price. And I mean, the other thing I really liked about it was AU's huge. I mean, I don't know what the attendance figures are, but um, you know, the manufacturing part of probably the attendance population is, when I say manufacturing, I'm talking about fusion, uh, inventor, you know, all the manufacturing and uh, mechanical products at Autodesk. The, the audience that, that makes up the people interested in that out at AU is probably 4% or less, you know, so there's all kinds of people that don't even know what a CNC machine is and don't care. <laughs> um, so, you, you know, and it's huge, right? So you're running around and you, you know, if you know where to look, you'll find the people you're looking for, just the other attendees that you might know from Instagram. But it, like Fusion Academy, every single person, every random person I ran into was either someone I was already following or somebody I'd heard of or somebody that has a YouTube channel um, or working at a company that I was familiar with, you know, like a Swissimation or something like that. So like the, the attendance value, I guess, to me, <laughs> or if you look at like, attendees you want to meet versus dollars paid i can't beat that like that's probably the best bargain i've ever had for a conference yeah i will say it was kind of nice that like you go to breakfast you sit down at a table and anyone at that table is someone you wouldn't mind having a conversation with couldn't say the same about las vegas yeah i had a i mean it was so cool like we'd go get breakfast we sit down i turn my head and there's saunders you know and ed Rees, and then i look to my right and you know there'd be other people that I've I've seen through YouTube or Instagram, but I never really got to put a face to. So that, that was super cool to kind of meet people and uh, kind of play the what's your IG handle game and try to figure out who these people are. But most of the fact was that I was already following everyone. You know, it, it was just being able to put um, faces to who I was following. And that was kind of cool. Yeah, and it's reciprocal too, because you know, like if somebody sees you and you sees you there, they know what you're interested, right? They know you're going to be interested in the same thing they are. Um, you know, at AU, you never know, right? So I've had, you know, I had some conversations with people that I realized like 30 seconds into me talking at, like say at the lunch table that 
they're, you know, the blank stares, okay, these people don't know anything, don't even know Fusion exists or <laughs> or don't really care anything about manufacturing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that just wasn't a risk at this place. Um, and Portland, the venue is great. So that was my, that was my first trip to Portland. Um, I think I definitely like that better than Vegas or something like this. Just the food was better. The, you know, just the environment was really cool. And it's also like so much cheaper to to find lodging. I I know you stayed at the hotel, but for Chris and I, we got an Airbnb, and like it it cost almost nothing compared to what everything else did. Yeah. So next year, or yeah, I'm assuming it's going to be annual. So next year, let's let's go in together on that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everything was was very affordable, except for, uh, I ended up staying at the conference hotel just because uh, I didn't know Portland. I didn't really know what other options. I've never done. Personally, I've never done Airbnb, um, but yeah, if you guys, uh, I'd say let's get a house, get enough people to get a whole house on Airbnb. Uh, I think we could find enough other instant machinists to make that feasible. I mean, did you guys meet anyone new that you didn't already know or know anything about that you're following now? I mean, there's a couple people, but I was more surprised by how many people you knew, Eddie, um, because like every time I turn to look at you, you're like with a different crowd of people. You had like this whole like list of people who you wanted to meet, who you did meet, who you were hanging out with. I pretty much knew like the the small circle of Insta machinists that I follow, and uh, you were you were branching out of that like the Venn diagram of people we knew. There was a sizable amount that wasn't in my circle that you were interacting with. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm more impressed by that than anything else. Yeah, and there, I mean, I would say almost probably 99 percent of the people I was talking to there we're all instant machinists so yeah y'all need to to dig a little deeper into the <laughs> the hashtag instant machinists uh you know start following it <laughs> you'll, you'll find all kinds of stuff um yeah so like i met i think it was one of your friends winston uh sammy with avid cnc so that was a new connection i made um like i said it used to be cnc router parts right uh they're avid now so that they're putting out some pretty neat stuff um who else um I think yeah, pretty much everyone else. I think for the most part, I was that I interacted with. I was already following, or we, you know, either text or chatted before. Um, but it was just like I put names to faces on a lot of those. Uh, you know, it's the first time I seen. I, I met some of them at AU last year, but uh, met definitely a lot more for the first time. Uh, it was and, great. Uh, let's not forget that this is the first time that you and Chris have met face to face. Oh yeah, that's right. It didn't seem like it, but <laughs> <laughs> it sure was. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Like we've been talking for so long, but this is the first time meeting. Um, I was actually more shocked at how many people knew who I was because I've never shown my face on Instagram before. Uh, so that was kind of interesting and humbling in a way. Yeah, I, I gave people a lot of help because um, I'm kind of the same way. I probably only have two or three posts where I've actually, you know, me if you saw me in it. Um, so I, I wore my shirt <laughs> a couple of times <laughs> with my logo. Yeah, they know my logo more than they know me. So that definitely. Uh, a lot of people found me just because of the logo on the badge or on my shirt. Oh, and Adam Savage. How about that? That was that was pretty cool. Yeah, that was amazing. Um, you know, oh, so I mean, I got to meet Adam Savage through the book signing thing. Uh, I got to meet Saunders for the first time. Uh, I got to meet Rob Lockwood for the first time. You know, like all these people that I definitely have looked up to. And uh, his uh, keynote speech was really... Uh, it, uh, really cool. Like I, I was actually one of my favorite speeches. Um, he said a couple things in there that really stuck with me, and uh, I really appreciated that that kind of interaction. 
Yeah, I was thinking like every name you hear mentioned on uh, Business of Machining, you know, they're talking about, every one of those guys is there, Amish. Uh, you know what's funny? I, I knew of Amish, but I had no idea what he does, except for the fact that he makes something good because uh, Grimsmo and Zoners are always saying that he makes good stuff. And that's the only thing that I know of him, but. SS CAD CAMs who we're talking about. Yeah. And uh, I think he's just across the border in Vancouver. And uh, there were a lot of folks. Um, but yeah, Adam Savage did the keynote and uh, along with Carl Bass. And, you know, I was kind of feeling a little blue a couple of weeks ago because I didn't make it to the Smithsonian for the Project Egress and, you know, and the chance to see Adam Savage. So this, this kind of helped make up for a little bit of that. He was really good. I don't know if they're going to put his keynote on the, you know, once the stuff goes up on the web. I know the sessions are going to go up, most of them. Um, I don't know if the keynote does, but, but it was really good. They were filming it, so maybe it will go up. I saw him filming it. Yeah, he had this one quote that he got from Guillermo del Toro, which is a filmmaker that I really respect and admire. But it was like um, basically how to be a good leader. Uh, and it was something along the lines of, I don't know, Winston, if you remember, I think it was uh, give somebody full autonomy and then within a narrow bandwidth. You know, it's like basically letting them, don't micromanage, right? Letting them do what they think is best, but giving them like a path to stay on. Uh, is how he succeeded in like doing all the films with you know having hundreds of people in the film and cast crew but still getting this one project done and for that really resonated with me because you know so I, I, we may not always have the chance to be a leader because we're kind of by ourselves at home and doing stuff but i still think there was a good takeaway from that that kind of stuck out and, and so winston did you uh try to get your head around sculpt and <laughs> and uh t-splines there were just a lot of different techniques in fusion that just had never crossed my radar before. But um, during the uh, the fusion design slam, um, which is like four people at a time on stage, they have a, a topic um, or a, a thing they have to model and they have 10 minutes to do it. Um, and during that event, like 75% of the participants were using sculpt or some other um, just they, they weren't designing parametrically, which I found to be quite interesting. Uh, I guess like the fastest way to create a volume is to just make a surface and start dragging it. Um, but that was a side of fusion I have never touched before. And for those people to immediately jump to it showed me how little of fusion's potential I knew about. Um, so I am still just wrapping my head around that. I can barely tell the difference between the surface workspace, sculpting, and meshes, uh, but those are all things I want to get better at. And some of the things I learned, like, are legitimately helpful. Uh, ways to, to fix, like, broken STLs, um, and just, like, import in meshes, reduce them, um, keep certain features, using surfaces to to manage your tool paths. So I have I have a lot to, to process right now, um, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to digesting all of that. Yeah, I think like, uh, you know, you were mentioning the sculpt uh, and kind of working with T-splines. So I think there's a pretty good split between people with like a mechanical engineering, engineering predilection versus industrial design, conceptual design. Um, the latter group always seems to be, you know, much more comfortable in that uh, sculpt T-spline um, kind of 
I don't know, I guess you almost call it like, it's almost like modeling with clay, right? Um, and, and, you know, they're a lot more focused on surfaces also, you know, and, and no, you know, parametrics not necessarily important, although it's definitely available in that environment. Um, it's really fast for just get, getting some geometry down and getting it to, uh, depending on what you're doing, right? Either getting, getting it to rough shape or getting it to be like really finely finished for like a product, right? Um, I'm the same way. I want to get better at that. And I deliberately skipped the T-spline class this year. <laughs> I'm going to go next time, but uh, it, it, it um, conflicted with something I really wanted to get uh, into this time that I missed at AU last time. So eventually, like if we keep going, I'll get to all the classes that overlapped and I had to miss. But uh, I have to be really on my game on that class because it's probably, I think there was like three pretty fundamental T-spline classes. Um, they're all, pr they're pretty intense, right? Uh, and I think there's, there's another one like working with uh, like the Bezier curves too. Um, both of those, you, know, you got to be on your game. It, it would have been nice to have like played around with it a little before attending uh, Fusion Academy, um, just just so, so some of the terms and tools are familiar. But even without it, like, or even with it, like you're still drinking from a fire hose. It's still a lot of information, um, but a little preparation would have helped. My experience with T-splines, it's always the same. Like I go, like I, I watch say a YouTube tutorial or, uh, and it always looks so easy. It looks so natural what they're doing and they're fast. And then I get in there and I think I got it. And I go in there and I like, it's obvious. I have no idea how to make it do what they were doing. So I gotta like slow it down and, <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's like if you're watching what they do, it's very deceptive because um, it looks easy, but actually there's a lot of complicated stuff going on. And they have a lot. I think they have a lot of uh, innate knowledge and you know from experience with it that necessar doesn't necessarily you don't necessarily catch it if you don't know like if you don't really know what it means when they're clicking on that piece of the geometry like on the on the edge, right? Or so there's like, it's the, the interaction model with that stuff is fairly complex. Um, your edge points and faces and all that stuff all mean different things. I think it's a more complex than the solid model. It's a lot of it. I feel like is just intuition on how things move because the, the UI is pretty simple. You click on a point, you drag it, you move it. But in order to create something, um, that is what you have in your head, you have to know how moving that one point affects everything else. So it's like it's like knowing how to paint with a paintbrush, um, but not knowing how to how to reach the desired end game like on your canvas with different colors, mixing, blending, and and creating shapes. So it's it can be for someone who doesn't have the experience or the intuition on how to how to manipulate things, it's you're in a really tough boat. Yeah, but I mean, there's a lot going on with, you know, there's also edge weights and tension and um, like these things you don't deal with on the solid model because everything's just flat, right? Um, for the most part. Uh, yeah. yeah, I didn't understand uh, the the tangency um, constraints until uh, this event. Oh, even in like the design space? Yeah, like the, the G, G0, G2, like those were sort of just abstract concepts and I really didn't know how they affect yeah they uh you know what I was pretty surprised about was I use uh what they call CAD Doctor and Creo Parametric Pro E 
and it's basically what direct modeling is like getting like a dumb model in like a step file and like going in there and fixing all your customers bad parts and I do that at work a lot but I actually feel like Fusion could give ProU a run for its money for the things that I saw and then when I got home I kind of threw up some of those models and I went in there for direct modeling and it was it was a lot easier to fix those things than it was to do in ProE so I was really impressed with that direct modeling feature and embarrassed that it's been there this whole time and I haven't even seen it. Honestly, there are a lot of things about Fusion that sort of, like, I had a new perspective on having attended this event. Um, like, I've often sort of just dismissed generative as this, this like, thing that is cool but not necessarily practical. But the way that they, they sort of presented it, um, they've, got, they've definitely got a, a long long-term plan for this that actually gives me a little more uh, confidence that it'll actually be a useful feature so like a lot of little things like the, the fixing surfaces and like all these features that they have that I either just didn't think too highly of or I didn't really know how to use them it's it's more powerful than I thought and uh, I'm actually excited to dig deeper into fusion to find out more yeah, and you know, the other great thing about this event was like, so besides all the great classes and the meeting people, when the classes were done, I could walk up to an Autodesk specialist and I could be like, hey, how come I can't do this? Or why is this happening? I could ask them direct questions and get instantaneous feedback from one of their developers, like in like real time. And like, that was like, that to me was like invaluable, right? Like to be able to walk up to them, thank them for the presentation, talk to them and have a conversation about what are some of the things that I was having and I was I could show them parts but hey is do you think this is doable like that and they would just explain it to me or they would tell me like hey it's in the pipeline it's coming uh, make sure you send the feedback so our team knows and stuff so that to me was really cool the interaction with the staff and to see that they do have a pretty good roadmap planned out and they are planning for the future pretty well yeah and I mean, a lot of the presenters um, and some of them are Autodesk employees but a lot of them are ex- expert in users of the product and uh so I think you know you get an even different perspective from those folks that basically live with the product and use it to run their business. Um, those are like to me some of the, those are some of the highest value um, from a if it was kind of a tutorial type class or tips and tricks. Those are the kind of people I really want to hear from. Um, the ones talking about new features and what's coming in the roadmap. You definitely wanted to be talking to the Autodesk, the, the someone with an Autodesk badge on, right? Um, so yeah, there's a good mix of both types of, uh, instructor or not instructor, but presenters there. So that's, it's, it's similar to AU. Like I would say the same thing was going on at AU, but, um, I get a lot of value out of that as opposed to just a purely ven- uh, vendor driven presenter, uh, roster. And there were some great, really great presenters there. Like, uh, Rob Awesome Lockwood, <laughs> that was probably my best class, my favorite class or, I had two that I really liked. Um, I mean, I liked them all, but two that I really like, they were eye-opening to me. Like, you know, I've been using Fusion for a few years and why am I not already doing it that way? <laughs> it was like, it seemed too obvious. Yeah, when he talked about it. So this is, um, so as far as I know, none of this, uh, none of the courses are, are up yet. Uh, probably be a month or two before they get them up where anyone can go uh, watch the video and download the presentation. So um, we'll definitely talk about these again I'll, I'll be keeping an eye out as they come available. We'll mention them again on the podcast and give you the links uh, to some of the stuff we're going to talk about now. But um, Rob's class was on uh, 
cam he called it cam templates which not to be confused with the cam template feature that's in manufacturing um under toolpaths this is like a it's more like a design pattern uh, about the way he uses fusion so i'm not going to go into like how you do it because that's in this presentation but basically it's a as a software developer like the whole thing that he was describing is very similar to the process we follow like to improve our code so it was you know basically modularize everything um you know use uh like small, like I'm trying to think of the word. So he basically had placeholders for your model, for your stock, for your fixture. And, and um, he'd create like an empty project with no geometry, but it had all the relationships between uh, the design side and the manufacturing side, your setups, right? And so he could very quickly start a new project, uh, you know, basically copy the, his empty template file, which is really just a fusion project file with no geometry in it and then drop his models into place through linking or other couple other methods and very quickly get a working setup. Um, he wasn't even having to click on geometry to create toolpaths because most of his stuff was set up with uh, uh, adaptive clearing or, or pocket in you know, the stuff that the 3D toolpaths can auto discover geometry. Um, so that was like, that was, I'm gonna definitely start trying to use that. Uh, you know, it was more, I mean, I think it's useful in any environment. Um, definitely would be useful in the kind of environment where he's working where it's, you know, a shop with lots of work to do. But uh, even for someone like me, I think, because um, I do, you know, I started thinking about, I think Winston brought up a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the, you know, doing a little more commercial work. Um, you know, I probably spend more time in Fusion on a job than I do actually machining it. So anything that reduces like that time in Fusion can streamline the boilerplate is gold to me right now. Yeah, like his class was definitely one of my favorites. And I think he, uh, I spoke to him afterwards. He, he is trying to make a video of it, I think on his YouTube channel. He might post that up earlier than when Fusion releases. But just like that, you know how much time we would save like setting up for pocket and C jobs? Like I, I can't even, it would save, so, it'd make it so much easier to just be able to go in there and get that rough pass all done and then go in there and just do your finishes, you know, a couple of few toolpaths to kind of get it cleaned out. But man, that would save me an incredible amount of time. And that's just from our scale. Like, you know, I can only imagine how much time that would save in an actual full-blown job shop or like a manufacturing facility. Like it was such a great uh, display of ingenuity, I think, that, that I really appreciated. Yeah, and I mean, as he was going through his, his presentation, I was seeing like, I, I was doing, I was getting to like the 50% part of most of what he was talking about, I'm already doing here just organically, you know, not really thinking about it, just kind of seemed a natural thing to do, but I had not put it all together like the way he did. So like, there's so much more value once you kind of get it, your head around exactly what he was doing. Um, the other class I really liked was the, uh, it was actually two sessions, uh, presentations on the new manufacturing extensions. They can I think they came out in June for Fusion. So that's, it's the, paid add-on to Fusion that, that gives you some advanced toolpath, a bunch of advanced features. Right? I think it was, they hit like three different spaces. Um, yeah, one of, the, one of the things that that I liked was uh, they talked about the the features of pulling from the higher-end CAD CAM suite in Autodesk's uh, portfolio, the Dell CAM stuff. I think it's like um, Feature CAM, Parts Maker, and uh, power mill. Yeah. Power mill. So, you know, I think steep and shallow was the first toolpath that 
that they mentioned. Um, that's the one that's in the the extension right now. There's more coming, so we'll talk about that a little bit later in the podcast. But that, like, you know, I saw the kind of the what's new announcement about it, but I didn't really it didn't really all click as to what that stuff does until they kind of sat through the presentation and they actually showed it in use and now I get it it's like yeah there's some stuff I might experiment with in the future it's a little pricey now I don't know if that's going to change but um, you know it's an add-on cost right on top of your base subscription but it's pay-as-you-go so it's not too bad you can always experiment with it if it's not for you you don't have a big investment Um, you know you can just basically use it for a month and then say it's not for me and you're done paying after that but uh, see what was the other thing um Oh yeah, so you were talking about generative design, Winston. So I don't know if you noticed, like they're pretty heavily, uh, or there's a lot of rich um, generative design content at AU last year in September or November. No, it was November, right? And yeah, they're making a pretty big push. Yeah, exactly. And now, like I mean, it's only almost a year later, and you know, there's huge improvements over what we were seeing last last year, and you know, and at the end of the conference this last week, they shared kind of where they're going in the future with fusion. And that was, you know, generative investment generative is still a big, uh, big priority for free fusion 360 and Autodesk. Um, so like, I remember like looking at the stuff last year, it looked really cool. You know, we saw the, uh, the planetary probe, um, everything looks like alien organic form coming out of it last year. There's still a little bit of that going on this year, but you're starting to see like much more uh, practical and manufacturable geometry coming out of the generative design. And I think that's going to be like getting better and better over time. You're actually going to see... You- I mean, it's it's more than that. They showed a preview of what they're working on, right? And they were doing parts that could be 2.5D machines. Yes, exactly. And um, and I think also like, you know, it kind of started as an additive thing where you had to use additive manufacturing high-end 3D metal printers, and now they're, even on the additive side, they're they're tweaking it to basically generate stuff that will work with, like, nylon powder bed and probably eventually FDM if it's not already there. Um, so, yeah, it's becoming much more useful, uh, even for day-to-day designer or engineer. And I think, you know, we're starting, they had a good story to tell this year about um, companies that found, like, practical uses for generative designs and successes. Uh, the one that comes to mind is Matsura uh, had a complex five axis fixturing challenge and, and you know, which is a common thing for them. And they spend quite a few man hours typically designing a complex fixture just before they can even get started on a customer's part. They worked with uh, the fusion evangelist in in Germany who basically worked with them and said, hey, let's try generative design for the fixture. and you know, I think everyone knows kind of generative design. You basically define some constraints. Um, you basically define where the geometry can't be and the strength and a few other really just descriptive values for the piece. And then the computer generates all the geometry um, and hundreds and hundreds of iterations of it, right? Until you, and you kind of pick the one that you like best or closest, you know, either cheapest to manufacture or, or um, basically, you know, looks good. <laughs> it's lots of criteria, right? But That was the most uh, tipping point for me, I guess, because I was kind of in the same point as Winston, like, how does this really apply? But after seeing them explain, like, you know, they basically can generate design and they can go home 
and come back and they'll have like hundreds of designs based on the parameters and then they can go in there and there's like a graph right like, like you said it'll tell you here's the cheapest stuff and here's the most expensive stuff and here's what's going to take long to make here you know and that to me was okay i get it now you know like i get why this can be a really big thing in the future if people start to use it uh, yeah because it's, it's fast that's the other thing i mean you know, they were talking about the reduction in, in hours of or staff hours between you know basically I guess computer time is cheap compared to paying somebody to sit there and design a fixture um, and in the end you know you, depending on how you set the constraints it, you can almost guarantee that it's machinable or manufacturable by whatever press, process you want you know that's part of the check that's going on during the design it's making sure you you can if you say I, I need to be able to make it with five access machine it'll it'll obey it'll honor that right and won't do any nasty things you just can't machine right it looks pretty but you can't make it um so yeah so i think that's probably going to be a big part of like what gets me into playing around with it is um you know can it just quickly solve a problem for me so i've to be honest i've never even fired up that module yet and played around with it in fusion um it's kind of like t-spline to me it's like it's neat i know it's there someday i'll invest in learning it but i'm starting to see and, and uh, these conferences stuff that makes me much more interested in it. So, yeah, well, this might be the... And I think it's Go ahead. it's also knowing that you'll get a useful result. Right. right. Um, especially once they roll out the 2.5D results, because for us, it's, it's kind of hard to roll the dice and drop like $25, $50, $75 just to try it out. Um, but for someone like Matsura, it's it's a no-brainer. Uh, like you drop, it's it's like a couple hours of engineer's salary, uh, less than that really, um, to, to come out with a result. And for us, it's like, I'm not sure if I'm going to use the result that comes out of it, so I don't know if I want to drop the money on it. Um, but if we know for a fact that, hey, it's going to give me a result that is really easy to machine, that is optimal, I'm a lot more willing to to try it out. Although I still wish they'd sort of bring the price down a little for individuals or something. I said I was in a Paul Schoen's presentation last year where he was talking about generative design from the perspective of an industrial designer, and like he was getting a lot of success by you know working with generative design, picking a few of the outputs that he liked, and then just using that as inspiration for designing the traditional way. Um, like this year, he's probably a lot closer, I'm just guessing, but he'd probably be a lot closer to being able to use something right out of the generative design without a lot of geometry tweaking. And next year, it's probably going to be even better. Eventually, it'll be like, you'll be getting the finished product, right? And it'll be routine, so. But if you're going to do something like that, where you're just going to use generative design as an inspiration... I feel like you'd be better served by uh, doing topology optimization. Um, it's not going to give you like safety factors, but it'll still give you load paths that look similar to generative that you just extrude out to a, a or project out to a 2D sketch and you just work with that. So, I mean, there are ways for us to get into that, that world of letting a computer optimize. Uh, without the upfront cost, it's just not going to be nearly as cool. Yeah, I think um, they contrasted those two. The um, what was the other one you said? Not the topology. Yeah, topology. Yeah, they were talking about that. And uh, I think the main thing is you have more knobs you can turn, uh, or more constraints you can 
explicitly state on Tinder design that'll give you like you'll hit more of your check boxes for your final product as far as uh, strength and static analysis and all that stuff like that. Um, it just has more inputs, right, over topology optimization. And I think even with topology optimization, don't you have to have starting geometry? Uh, you give it a, a starting volume and it whittles away at that volume until it's reduced it to the point where um, the majority of the forces are going through that mass or that volume. So it's just, it's taking away stuff where there's no load. Yeah, with generative, like you start with nothing, you define a few like go, no-go areas and it does all the rest. Like it creates from basically from nothing or, or connects the, right, connects the, the various paths that you, you uh, define up front. Um, I'm trying to think what else I really liked. Uh, oh, well, we'll talk about it a little bit. Um, when I get to the kind of future recap, what's coming in Fusion, but uh, I want to get a little sneak peek. Like the thing I was probably most excited about was the improvements they made to fourth axis machining in Fusion. I'm not sure when those are coming. I think it's this year because um, I've already seen, I know it's in beta. I've already seen some of the Autodesk people posting uh, toolpaths and simulation from that, but like the limitation right now in Fusion is it only supports wrapped fourth axis. Uh, it, it's useful, but it still has a lot of restrictions. It's not like complete fourth axis support. Um, you, I think today, you know, without some t patching or some other tricks, you can't do, uh, you can't machine an open profile. It has to, you know, it all has to be closed curve or closed profile. I uh, can't really select. It's like it's like they knew that you just bought a Daytron fourth axis and they're like, we're on it. <laughs> well, even on the Poxis, I mean, Pocket and C, it's going to be extremely useful because, you know, most of what I do is is index or positional third axis, three axis and continuous four axis, fourth axis. I probably do more of that or I want to do continuous four axis, I should say, but I can't, right, because of that restriction. Um, so the stuff I saw in the demos was exactly what I've been missing and wanting. So um, it's just like you'd see in the other, like almost all the other CAM packages, they're more expensive, they can do this today. Uh, three CAM and stuff like that, you can just basically go continuously around, you know, rotate on the, on the, on the pocket and see it be the B axis, right? And just have the tool cutting and going like down the Z axis. It's like, almost like a lathe, right? That's what I want. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, I can almost do it with the, with Fusion today, but it's a lot of, of like tricking the software, right? It doesn't work easily and it's, it's error prone and crash prone. So um, I don't mean the software, I mean, you can crash your tool if you don't. Were you in that um, surfacing the multi-axis toolpath you never knew you had? I was last at, at AU, I took, uh, yeah, that was great. And so that kind of ties in pretty well with the stuff that, um, if it's the same class I'm thinking of, um, the stuff you were talking about, Winston with the curve continuity, and how was it kind of emphasizing how the geometry you create in design has a big influence on your toolpath quality? Um, it didn't go that far for the one that I went to, but Chris, you can share what you found. Oh, so the one that I went to, he basically spoke about like how sometimes when you choose a flow toolpath, it doesn't exactly do like the nicest kind of path for that. And that's based on because of the UV curves based on the geometry in, this, in the CAD portion of Fusion. So he showed us how to like 
Yeah, he showed us how to like go back in there and basically showed us a trick, a workaround that, uh, that you could use where you can do more control of the UV isocurves and then basically create a much better path for the tool path. And you can do this, uh, you know, in a way where you can almost trick Fusion into being a better cam package for 5-axis by doing this workaround. Um, it's kind of hard to explain like over the air, I think. I, you know, basically, if you were to project these 3D curves and then you were to draw your own connecting rays, and then by doing this in a more proportioned spacing, you can change the way the full two path kind of goes over. I'm pretty sure this is flying over everyone's head. You just got to wait until the recording comes out and you can watch it because it's, it's kind of hard to explain. You got to see it. Yeah, and that's, that's going to become more important because, um, you know, basically making sure you have good geometry hygiene on the design side. Because um, it's going to have more and more influence on toolpath generation, especially the auto automatic toolpath generation. Uh, steep shallow is just like flow, if I understand correctly. It's also it's not so much looking at the STL mesh; it's looking at the or you know the triangles or, or I'm sorry, not the triangles, but the the facets. It's actually looking at the the surfaces um, to generate the toolpath, just like flow. So it's sensitive to bad geometry. Um, curving curve or ugly curves i guess i would say <laughs> right yeah and guess what i got to ask an autodesk guy i was like hey in the flow toolpath right now you have us putting in steps like 50 steps 100 steps is there any future plan to make it so that we can input an actual step over and he said yes so that's i mean i don't know i that's i've been waiting for that because you know trying to figure out like okay 20 versus 50 it's basically typing it in and you're watching it and like okay i want to tighter going back in rechanging that again that's kind of annoying I, I i can't wait for them to be able to control that a little bit more with an actual step over yeah i think i mean it actually takes some calculus to generate to convert you know from steps to get the if you have an, a known step over and you want to convert that to the number of steps to cover that surface because i mean unless it's like a flat surface if it's got some complex curves then it's not a straightforward calculation so that's that's a nice thing to have um I'm trying to think what, um, there's something else. Yeah, I'll, it'll come to me. But there was something else related to Steep Shallow that was kind of eye-opening to me. I just can't remember what it was right now. Uh, it definitely looked like it was easy to use. And uh, high, it was like a high productivity application or toolpath, just like adaptive clearing, right? Where you don't have to, you don't have to drive it much. You, you don't even have to select geometry. You just say, here's, you know, you know here's my uh, tool orientation, figure it out. And it does a really, really good job. So I'm going to probably experiment with that. Definitely when I get the Neo, I'm going to play around with that and see kind of how it works compared to my normal. Uh, well, they talked a lot about, you know, it's basically a combination of, of uh, scallop and parallel, like for steep and contour, probably. You said you'd use it where you were probably using scallop and parallel before. Um, yeah, I use, I tend to use more spiral where most people will probably use scallops. So, uh, I probably have a lot of room for improvement. So anyway, I'm, I'm excited about that one. I think what else I was going to ask you. Oh, go ahead. I've been doing a lot of talking. You guys talk about it. I don't even know where to go from here. Um, I will say that, um, the session that probably was the least helpful was the, uh, Harvey tool, high efficiency machining talk because they basically just regurgitated what they put on their blog. Um, but the best moment to come out of that, which is probably my highlight for the entire event, was uh, Saunders asking them and 
uh, just putting them in the spotlight saying like, hey, when are you going to offer direct sales? And <laughs> they just, they really didn't have a coherent answer for that. Um, but it's, yeah, but it's just, it's nice that the community, like, we're all on the same wavelength. Like, that's something we all want. And I think they got that message pretty loud and clear. So it's it's just a good way for like-minded people to, to sort of share um, what they're looking for and hopefully influence not just Autodesk, but also some of the companies around the machinist community um, who we really want to push to be better. I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic to, like, the issue they're having with that, which, you know, they have this distributed relationship. It's probably been going on for um, decades, would be my guess, and they're good business partners. It's hard to just pull the rug out from under them. But I think John mentioned it a few times. It's like, there's got to be some way that that system can work with, you know, from the user's perspective, all I want to see is a website. I don't really care what goes on behind. I want to be able to go to a website, click buy, just like on Amazon, and my tool shows up. You know, there's probably some way to still do that with distributor, like hand the order off. You know, if you're ordering in Texas, hand you know, take the order through a central website and distribute the sales and the work and the fulfillment to a distributor, right? Or at least the credit. You know, I don't know. It's got to be some way to do that. But um, yeah, I think those guys. It would be. It would make me a lot happier if I could just go get whatever tool I want. It's okay to have a distributor system, but it's not okay when all your distributors don't carry any of the stuff that anybody wants, right? It's like, what's the point of having a distributor down the street for me if they never carry anything that I'm looking for? And it always comes from, you know, the main hobby shop anyway, so. Um, yeah, but the other big thing is for people like kind of hobby guys like us that don't order a large volume of tools compared to say a commercial shop, it's... Um, I've never had this problem with hybrid distributors, but in other, you know, basically it's hard sometimes to kind of get a connection with the distributor. Like you're just not enough business for them to really give you any kind of priority, um, return your call or whatever. So that's, uh, especially if you don't have like a business, if you're just calling as an individual, hey, I'm on YouTube, um, I got a tool order for you. Like, you know, maybe they email you back, maybe they don't. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that's always frustrating. I mean, usually once you kind of get past that and get a relationship with them, it's okay. But um, yeah, I would much rather have that kind of that transaction disintermediated, <laughs> or at least appear to be disintermediated. So yeah, I'm sure over time that's going to come. Uh, yeah, I mean that was actually one of my that was pretty funny as far as like one of the top moments. Um, you know, just that meeting people, Rob's class. Uh, just general experience, and then Winston and I kind of did a little bit of traveling in Portland because this was our first time, so that was kind of fun too, to walk around and get drunk and check out everything. Yeah, I got to hang out with uh, uh, Ed Reese from Saunders' shop, and you know, I saw a little bit of John, he's, he's always got uh, entourage around him, right? He's always a pretty busy guy, um, but he took some time, he actually helped me out with a question I asked that uh, they weren't able to answer, the presenter, basically didn't have the full answer for me, but John did. So um, it was something like he'd run into the problem too. So he's going to he's gonna get back with me, I think, once he gets back in uh, Ohio. Um, it was I was trying to figure out how to swarf without uh, having a defined chamfer on the product, like, like you can do with 2D chamfer. You can just kind of put in the hard parameters for the chamfer width. You don't really have to have the geometry for it. So I was hoping there was some way to do that with swarf. Um, so he said there thinks like if you understood my question right he thinks there's a good answer that worked for him so i'm hoping to hear back from him 
Let's see what else. Um, oh, I, I hung out with Tom too. Uh, I think he's uh TJ Zellick, I think. Yeah, yeah, Tom Zellickman. Um, yeah. Oh, Inspiration Metalworks. Yeah, yeah. So he's a great guy, um, and he knows everybody. <laughs> so he was he was he was uh, really good at, at uh, connecting me with people that were either DFX listeners that I didn't hadn't met before or um, you know, basically people I, I should want to meet. So it was all really good. Because uh, I'm, I'm like kind of shy at some of those things. So uh, he was like a really good one to hang out with and um, get connected with folks that I probably wouldn't have approached myself. So thanks, Tom. Appreciate that. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Yeah, he was a super cool guy. He actually, uh, we met at the Summer Bash and uh, he found he found me randomly in the corner and it kind of freaked me out a little bit. But yeah, he was super nice. And then it was really cool to be able to hang out with him all weekend and knock back beers and stuff. Talk shop. Yeah, for, for me, it was good to meet up with him just because I missed him by a day at a IMTS last year. Yeah, did y'all, uh, did y'all run into Aaron? Um, I think he's, that's a, I think he's DCT teacher on YouTube and probably on Instagram too, from Australia. I didn't get a chance to say hi, but I, I did see him a few times and he was talking to people, so I didn't want to bother him. But yeah, I, I, I saw him. Yeah, he's a great guy. I think he, he gets the award for coming probably the furthest distance to, to come to a Fusion Academy. Um, and I heard he, he, he made it back safe and sound, so that's good. I've done that flight once, in my, or there and back once, and I know it's a, it's brutal. So that's some dedication to Aaron for coming all the way to, to hang out with us. I appreciate that. Um, hey, Winston, so what was your what was your favorite new feature, if you could pick one in Fusion 360? I mean, for me, it would probably be the fourth axis, even though for me, I don't do a lot of pocket NZ stuff, but just the potential it adds in, um, like if hopefully, like knowing that this is coming, I'm going to really push for, for Carbide to like start developing a solution in like 2020, 2021. Um, Cause like it, that makes it so much more viable. And I mean, I think the fourth axis stuff is, like really great for avid because they just came out with a fourth axis so like they they sort of have a a leg up now um but now that this is like hopefully going to be as easy as three axis or five axis for us like hobbyists i i would like to sort of be able to play around with that a lot more and i think for me that's that would be the first thing i'd want to play with um, the 2.5 degenerative is the next highest thing up on my wish list to play around with, but I mean, they got to come out with like educational pricing for cloud credits or something before I invest in that. Yeah. I heard, I mean, nothing, no firm commitment from Autodesk, but I did hear, uh, you know, a couple of, uh, brief conversations where they're, you know, that's being, I know that's being looked at. So the issue Winston's talking about is to use generative design. Um, like I think some of it's free, but at some point you're, it's basically using resources at Autodesk, you know, their cloud servers, right? So they've always kind of had this pay-as-you-go model for some of the advanced uh, computational stuff. I think uh, simulation, advanced simulation, uh, generative, generative design falls in that category too. Because I think I don't know if you can even execute that on your local PC. I think that's I think generative's all in the cloud. So you know they have a model to recoup some of that cost. And um, the issue is like the people that are on the startup or hobby license, and normally we have un unlimited cloud credits, um, like you, you probably use them for rendering if you do any cloud rendering. 
they don't apply even on the free license to generative design. So, you know, if the philosophy behind or part of the philosophy behind the free license is hobbyist uh, makers, those kind of folks should be able to experiment with, with experiment with the full Autodesk Fusion 360 um, experience, right? And for the most part, you do. So generative is one of the few areas where that kind of falls down. If I worked at Autodesk, <laughs> I'd probably figure out some way to put a pool of, you know, instead of unlimited cloud, you know, give them unlimited cloud credits, but either a time limited or a credit limited pool of credits that you could apply to, to mess around with generative design a little bit, right? Couldn't get very far with it, but, um, but you could always, you know, start paying after that. But right now, I think the price hurdle, I think it's, what is it, $125 to do a design? I think, yeah, 125 cloud credits. I don't know if that translates to dollars everywhere, but that's what it would cost me to like to completely generate a design and then pull the geometry in and start working with it and say, print it. I think if there was some way to at least do that a few times a year on the free license, that would be, that would they would get better adoption of it um, across the whole spectrum of Fusion users. So I think that's what you were talking about, Winston, right? As far as the price impediment. Yeah, I mean, like, even if, like, I don't even care if they don't give me like one free design a month or year or whatever. Uh, even just to like reduce the the rate, like if it wasn't one hundred and twenty five, if they brought it under like seventy five or so, I'd be it'd be a little easier to swallow. And I would love to to sort of tout the benefits of generative design, but it's just it's not practical for me. And I know that my viewers they're not going to spend that money either. So. There's no audience for it in my my little bubble. Yeah, I think it's still in that category. Um, if you need if you need it, you really need it, and you can pay for it, <laughs> just like some of the advanced cam stuff. Um, excuse me. I think over time, it'll probably become more of a core feature and less of a incremental bump to play around with it. But that's just my opinion. I don't have any inside knowledge from Autodesk, but uh, just with the huge investment they're making in it, it's got to be a big part of fusion going forward. I think that's their vision for it. So um, I, I would think at least some, you know, more and more of that stuff's going to trickle into base product, base subscription price over time. I mean, who knows, that may end up being like the default way you start defining geometry in the future, like 10 years from now. Um, and we'll not, like, ne never look back, right? <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that's that's the best way to do it, right? Because if can you imagine having to make a bracket and then, you know, you had they didn't like the design you had to make another bracket and keep iterating each iteration would take you like another day right but this computer can generate like 100 iterations overnight while you sleep so i definitely can see a very uh, very amazing use. they just got to work on their uh, their business model a little bit i think this this 125 cloud credits things but you have to buy 200 is super weird so they need to figure that out oh yeah yeah i know what you're talking about yeah so like one of the t you know the big technical focuses on generative design is um yeah, they're bringing more and more machine learning to it. And that's where they're kind of getting from the impractical, unmanufacturable alien organic. looks like a scene from Alien, right? looks really cool, but um, to practical geometry, right? So that's, that's they've started applying machine learning, um, teaching Fusion or their, their cloud backend how to recognize uh, practical, <laughs> you know, designed for for manufacturability uh type shapes and i saw some of that you know they showed a little bit of uh like i was starting to see things that oh i, I actually recognize what 
that part's designed to do. <laughs> um, I was not, I did not feel that way at AU last year. It looked like all movie set stuff. Um, so yeah, so I think it's going to get smarter. It's going to get better. And hopefully it's going to get cheaper. Um, how about you, Chris? What was your kind of favorite new feature that, that's coming? Oh, well, I think for the new thing, it would be the multi-axis uh, toolpaths that are coming from PowerMill. Because to me, multi-axis infusion is kind of like the nerdy girl who hasn't had a makeover yet. And PowerMill is more like the Victoria's Secret model that's kind of busting out. It has way more like multi-axis like tools that we can use to kind of tackle different projects and stuff. So um, I haven't even been using it for that long, but I feel like I've already gotten projects where I can't do it in Fusion because it's too difficult. So I, I'm trying to figure tricks and stuff to move around it, but it'd be nice to have a bigger uh, pool of tools to use uh, for multi-axis stuff. So to me, that's the most, uh, most interesting thing that I'm looking forward to, seeing what they bring over. Fusion announced that they've completed the porting of the Delcam manufacturing kernel into Fusion 360. So traditionally we've used what's been called the HSM kernel. Um, that's where your adaptive, adaptive uh, clearing and basically everything you work with on the 3D side, at least, and maybe some of the 2D stuff uh, comes from today. So uh, I think the Delcam product, PowerMill, I'm not sure if all, I think their whole suite was using the a different kernel. Um, with basically support for more advanced, especially five-axis, multi-axis finishing strategies. Um, so now that the kernel's ported, which was the hard part, uh, that makes it much easier or much quicker to start bringing over um, the more advanced uh, CAM toolpath strategies from the Dell CAM suite into Fusion. So, you know, that's basically going to be the story for the next probably year or two. Um, actually, I got more than the impression most of it's going to, you know, the good stuff is going to happen in the next 12 months. Uh, some of it's happening later this fall or, or winter. And um, most of what I heard mentioned would have been, you know, basically be a finishing strategy, which is where the big gap is in Fusion today and multi-axis. They don't, they only have a couple of uh, kind of high-end finishing strategies. I think, you know, Flow was the last advanced one that was added. Um, blend was, I don't know where Blend is today. I think that got replaced by steep and shallow, or maybe it was always the same thing called blend and beta, but now it's released. Uh, it's very powerful and there's more coming. So um, I don't know much about them other than I've seen what PowerMill can do versus Fusion and 5-axis and it's all good. Now, I would encourage anybody listening to download PowerMill. They give you a 30-day free trial and there's a ton of YouTube videos to watch if you want to kind of just dip your toes a little bit. It's definitely worth checking out. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing is, you know, try out the, if you Got 125 cloud credits. Spend a month playing around with the cam extensions to see how that stuff works in Fusion. The stuff that's already out, um, it's new, but so there's probably not all that much on the way of tutorials out there, but they're, they're getting there. Um, now, the other thing related to, to Delcam, um, so yeah, so they've got the new kernel, the multi-axis strategies come over, but the other thing I think that's big, um, especially for the bigger shops that do a lot of uh, job shops work or uh, setting up jobs is uh, feature-based cam, right? So there's a product called Feature Cam in the Dell Cam suite. Um, I think the first piece of that to come over is also in the manufacturing extension. It's that automatic hole recognition for drilling, and they kind of walk through that. You know, I, I read it a little bit on it when the announcement was made on the on the basically the release notes, um, but actually having them seeing a demo of it walk through and how it works, it's like wow, it's a lot more than I thought. Um, it basically can find any hole in your geometry, uh, figure out what drill, si it's not just the drill, like it finds the right tool, 
um, and it finds the like it has these predefined processes like like you probably do a center drill drill tap you know and that's your cycle right uh, maybe a counter bore like you can pick that say okay do the drill or center drill drill it's like a, a pre-canned recipe right you can pick that all four of those operations and say apply it to all the holes or all the holes on this side or whatever right or all the holes of this geometry um, you know fusion used to have the ability to say pick all similar holes this is like way beyond that <laughs> so and you don't do you don't you don't basically you don't necessarily click on any geometry um, it's all kind of parameter driven or it's like it's almost like a spreadsheet you're kind of you're filling out a few things like maybe saying okay holes up to three millimeters treat with this strategy six millimeter holes do something different with um and uh I'm trying to think oh the other, yeah and then it just basically generates the whole all the all the cam workflow for that all the toolpath everything and so it's you know it's focused on features right recognizing features and recognizing the right thing to do with them um, I think there's a whole lot more of that stuff in feature cam that and I'm not real familiar with that that's kind of that's not the kind of way we work but uh, you know I think big shops love that kind of stuff so I'm, I'm excited about it I think that's gonna be pretty good it's, I mean it's like the bees knees man like that stuff is it's awesome and the fact that they're they're doing it and they're still giving Fusion for free. Like, I, I'm really curious to see how much of an impact Fusion's gonna have on the current market of SolidWorks and ProE and other companies because they're gonna give them a run for their money soon, if not already. You know, the, the, the new generation of kids, they're just using Fusion because it's out there and available. And, I'm, you know, as they get older, they're trained with that. I wonder how the industry is gonna change or maybe it's too stubborn to accept other things, but it'd be interesting to see what happens in the next five, 10 years. Did you guys think about um, like one of the biggest like sleeper announcements there <laughs> on the last day was, um, and this isn't for everybody because not everyone does PCB design, but um, Autodesk bought Eagle. I don't know, it's probably three or four years ago, uh, which is you know pretty pretty well used or heavily used uh, EDM or EDA ECAD, you know, basically PCB design application. You know, like we do mechanical design, you do your electronic design and something like Eagle, and you end up with the your finished products at printed circuit board, right? And just like, just like you design and and you know geometry, and then come over to CAM and spit out your toolpaths and command the machine to make your part. Works similarly, right? In PCB, so you define your board, electrical simulation, all that stuff, and then you come over, and at some point you want to generate Gerber's and drill files that you can send to a, a board house, right, to generate. The, or to actually manufacture your boards or do it in-house if you've got like a phantom tools mill or something like that um so that's always been like kind of a separate application but if i understood them correctly maybe you guys can validate what i'm saying uh since you sat in the same presentation sounds like that's that uh what we used to call eagle is basically coming in fully into fusion is just another space because you know you've got design the design space manufacturing space drawings right all those spaces right up in the upper left corner of fusion um like now the PCB design is going to be just another space. And after you design your board and your mechanical, you know, you can do the mechanical and the design on the electronic board or electronics all on the same tool, Fusion. And then when you're ready to post your PCB board out to a, a board shop, I mean a, a board house or do it in-house, you use the same Fusion post-processor system that you use on the cam side to post to your CNC machine to post out your Gerber files and your your drill files and anything else you need, your layers, right? So that's 
Yeah. So to me, that's huge. And like, it wasn't a lot of like the audience didn't go crazy over that one. Cause I think it was just, the audience was very heavily stacked towards mechanical engineers and uh, industrial designers and machinists at this particular form. Right. Um, but I think that's going to be big in the EDA world when that gets like, when everyone kind of realizes what's going on there. Uh, I see it as a plus. I know there's probably a lot of Eagle users who are going to be a little more circumspect because, you know, like I don't, they didn't, the other thing, I, let me be clear, they didn't say anything about what's happening with Eagle. I'm assuming Eagle as a standalone product is still going to be here. Um, and maybe it's just a subset of functionality that's coming into Fusion because not, you know, probably most Eagle users don't use Fusion, don't need a mechanical, um, inter- uh, mechanical design product. So, um, but it's nice. For, yeah, for people like I do all of it. So I would love to have, like, just go into Fusion and do everything. Like, as someone is getting interested into doing uh, electronics mixed with some of, you know, because we don't make stuff, but we don't make stuff with electronics yet. Uh, at least I don't. So it's something that I would like to incorporate. And the fact that they're giving it to me, I'll take it. Like, love it. Yeah, that's, a, I mean, to me, that's like the perfect maker tool now. Like, my Swiss Army knife just got the scissors and tweezers. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the magnifying glass. Yeah, that's yeah, like exactly what I want. Um, yeah, I'm a little selfish here, but that, that was almost like, this one's for you, Eddie. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I love that. And I can't wait to use that. I don't know. I, I can't remember if that was the, one of the ones that's coming this fall or if we have to wait a little bit longer, but um, that's going to be big. So that was like, if I had to pick, that'd be my second one after fourth axis that really got me excited. Um, the Eventually the five axis, you know, I don't know how much of that's going to translate into pocket and C, so I don't know, if, but uh, I have to kind of see it. But definitely the other stuff, uh, I, I can as soon as it shows up, I can put it to use. Yeah, I mean, basically all we really need is a better roughing, surfacing strategy, and like you said, better finishing tools, uh, just ways to control the 3D space a little better with our toolpaths. Because right now there's a lot of like gimmicky workarounds to use the SWARF and all that stuff, but just to give us the tool that can already kind of incorporate, so we don't have to go draw a bunch of containment sketches or different paths for it to take would be, would be enough for me to be happy. I, I don't need much. What I really want is, I want, to be, I want like a, you know, they've got two axis adaptive clearing, three axis. I want full multi-axis toolpath that works like adaptive clearing where I don't have to, def- I don't have to click on geometry. It just looks at the model, figures out how to move all five axes to, you know, say, like you said, do my roughing pass. Right. And I want my, you know, there's already finishing strategies. I think that work like that or are about to be in fusion that work like that. Um, I don't know how well this worked for roughing. Like they, they said, uh, steep shallows of semi finishing and finishing strategy, not necessarily good for roughing. Um, so, uh, but you know, ho- hopefully over time, the less I have to like, especially in five axis, right? That's one of the hardest things you, um, is constraining the tool path, kind of getting to the, like getting the tool to approach the geometry from the direction you want it to is, there's a lot of manual work, tool orientation setup and all that stuff, uh, especially if the five axis part is organic, kind of complex with a lot of, um, you know, that lot of flat surfaces, right? Just very, lots of curves. So if the uh, toolpath generator can look at that and figure it out, that's going to make me very happy. So I'm not promising that that's coming because I don't, I actually never, I didn't see anything exactly like what I was talking about. Um, but you see hints of it and the stuff they were showing. So hopefully that's what's coming. Counterpoint to that though, <clears throat> sorry, is that you could use one of Rob's templates and just have a, um, just a generic adaptive um, from each face 
and just use that with rest machining because I suspect that would actually be more efficient on the Pocket NC because the rotary axes are so slow. Um, yes, or even like a octagon, right? Maybe define an octagon or eight-sided approach to the part. I use that quite a bit um, where it kind of falls down as if there's some off angle through holes, through the or holes, bores, basically the tool's coming in at the wrong angle, right? Even the roughing, it just kind of, I get gouges <laughs> if I'm not careful with that. I usually have to go in and exclude that geometry with patches or something. Um, but it's, that's a good, really good workaround until they get that. Um, and yeah, with the stuff that Rob was doing, uh, I think I would end up with a couple of like default template files that use that approach and see that it'll get you like 80%. He said, it doesn't get you all the way through. You're still going to have features and, you know, certain features you have to kind of either add to his template for that particular job or mostly subtracting stuff from the template that you don't need. But, um, like the pole boiler, it was like, it was basically taking care of the boilerplate. So, you know, I think like facing adaptive clearing, initial roughing is the boilerplate in any tool or any part creation. And then you go into like defined details where you might be drilling a hole or chamfer, you know, something like that where you have to kind of define some geometry, tell the kind of help the help fusion figure out where you want to do with that tool. Um, but the stuff where it can kind of figure it out on its own, like he defined a really good way of leveraging leveraging the capability that's already in Fusion to do all that work for you. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna definitely start applying that. That's true, That's like that doesn't even require a change or any improvement to Fusion's toolpath, it's all in the way you set it up. It's that functionality is already in Fusion. It's just he figured out how to kind of exploit it. So yeah, I know it's kind of hard for our listeners to hear us talking about stuff that we, you know, we're not actually telling you how it works because you got to wait for Rob's stuff to come up. But uh, believe me, it's good when it's out there. We'll let you know. Uh, and like I said, I think Winston, you mentioned he might be bringing it out to YouTube anyway, like going into more depth on it um, in the future. So I think Saunders mentioned that on BOM last week. So we'll see. It'll show up somewhere and then we'll, we'll, we'll catch it and let you know. Um, sort of building off of that, though, um, he basically the way I see it is sort of like Mad Libs for machining. You basically just, there's a couple empty spaces, you plug in your stock, you plug in your part, and it creates just a whole bunch of like already useful, like the, the first 30% of your work in creating a toolpath. Um, but that uh, the way that works is you you start with a basically a empty file with some, some work holding and you drop in your part, you position it, and everything else just falls out from there. Um, I would like us, especially because Fusion is transitioning to Teams, to be able to sort of have like a library of work holding options that we can apply to our parts. Um, and the fact that in Teams you can uh, cross-reference parts across projects would make that so much more useful. So I'm hoping that just the new... The, the complete realization of our, our cloud future um, will allow us to actually sort of just leverage each other's work a little more efficiently. Yeah, I think, I mean, just even for even for somebody working by, just by themselves in Fusion, the, the library concept is going to be big. Like, I've tried to do that. I have, like, I've gone through, like, two or three different reorganizations of how I use Fusion and projects and folders and all that stuff. And um, I run into that limit a lot where I have... I might have work holding I defined in project A and I want to use it in project B and I can't bring it in as an XREF. Um, so, you know, there's workarounds. You could just copy 
you know, Fusion made it easy to copy and paste or export the whole archive um, and then bring it in. But then you still you're still losing the cross reference right to the across the projects. Um, it kind of breaks the link between those. So with Teams, so, oh, I'm going to say back up a little bit. So Fusion Teams, everybody switch, right? If you didn't already get the word. Um, so even if you don't work in a team, if you're just a solo Fusion user, uh, you've had, I think what they call a individual, like you've been in the individual category under your, it's, it's basically has to do with your, your Fusion user account um, and how your data, your cloud data is stored. So Autodesk is trying to migrate everybody, whether they really need team functionality, shared functionality with other Fusion users or not, um, they need to kind of get everybody to migrate to a Teams account. Um, there's no charge for it. It's just basically works just the same as what you're doing today with some new features that you didn't have before. Um, like I've, I already did my transition. It was painless. I didn't lose any data. And I can't really tell like any difference other than now I can bring in, um, I mean, it works just as well as it did before, right? No, nothing, I had no uh, regressions. But now I can cross-link. I can bring in a file from any project, right, into a new project, and still keep the cross-reference. I think the, I think it keeps cross-reference. I gotta go check that. But um, but you can do it directly now. You don't have to like export the file and then bring it back in. Um, and there's gonna be a lot of other stuff that's coming because we're using Teams. That's they're basically doing architectural changes on the back end that work better if everyone's on a Teams account. So. Um, there is a there's a sunset date for getting all your data moved over to Teams. I don't I know it's this year, but I'm not sure when. So uh, they're going to let you know. You should be hearing from Autodesk pretty regularly if you haven't converted. Just keep an eye on your emails and and uh, it's it was painless for me. I don't know if either of you have converted yet. Not yet. I have partially converted. I moved a couple of my projects over just to test it out. So far, no issues. Um, and at some point, I'll I'll make the full conversion. Oh, I was saying that we should probably start up a team and uh, link up some of our pocket and see fixture. I think Winston and I talked a little bit over there. It'd be cool to do that and also uh, kind of really focus on some fixturing for pocket and see that the three of us could share. That way we could um, integrate all that with our team stuff and use whatever we needed, you know. One of the things I'm not clear on team. So team, my understanding is it used to cost money. Like you either had an individual account or you had a team account. Um, team account was typically for like a company that had multiple Fusion users, right? But they wanted them all under a corporate account and not using their individual accounts. Um, they could share data. There's a lot of, a lot of extra benefits they got, uh, features got that got enabled when they switched to a team account. But if you were just working by yourself like us, typically, didn't make any sense to, to use Teams. But now Teams means all that plus some other stuff that means everybody. So basically what I end up with is a team of one. So my personal account, um, is now a team account and it's just me. What I don't know is if I can, and, and that'll always have to be just me, right? Because I have commercial NDA work there, right? That I can't share with other people, right? So, um, like, I don't know if I can create is like a second team or a third team. Like, if I wanted a, you know, DFX team, for instance, um, without creating a new user ID, right? And getting a new license. Right. I think we can because I'm in three teams right now. I'm in your team, my own team, plus another team I created for a client. Yeah, you could actually do that even before you had teams. Like you could share, I could share a project with other people in Fusion. Um, 
so I think Teams is a little more. I think you. I think what you're talking about is right. Like I can. I now see your user, and I can define access rights for your user, for Chris inside my team. Um, yeah. So actually, maybe you're right. But I don't know. But I still want. To, like I'd love to create a DFX team, for instance. Um, that's separate from my my kind of business and personal one. Um, but I don't know if that's possible um, without paying for another fusion license. So I'll, I'll try to find out. Yeah, I don't know if you just have like an arbitrary number of teams, like you can have an arbitrary number of projects, but uh, definitely like the one team that I have works really great. <laughs> and, the, and the transition was was uh, fine. I, I went ahead and brought all my projects over. I kind of did like Winston did, I started with a few and then that worked and I brought the rest over. It took like an hour for them to all migrate. And I've been on it for about a month now. I want to backtrack for a bit and say that my favorite feature is not actually the fourth axis uh, cam. It's actually the fact that sharing projects won't suck anymore going forward. Um, because the old way of sharing a project was you go to your project browser, you right click on it, you get a link, you send that link, that person opens that link, which opens an A360 page, they click the drop down to um, have a link sent to their email to download the file. They wait for that link to show up in their email. They click on that link, they download it, and then they have to upload that back into Fusion on their side before you get the project. And moving forward, there should be an option to just click in the browser, open in Fusion 360, and it will magically appear in your workspace, which will be so much better. And I don't know why that wasn't the case from the get-go. It is. Yeah, they talked about that. So that's coming. That's definitely coming this fall, or like very. I think August. They said August or September for that release. So maybe it's the next Fusion update. Um, and they've been working on that for a while, so I know that's a big one. Uh, the only other thing um, was like the other, and again, I don't use a lathe, so a lot of the stuff I'm not going to even try to tell you what was there because it was all over my head. But um, all the people that were in the new lathe features disc. Uh, presentation we're all very happy so yeah there's been big improvements to turning in fusion some of them are already there some are coming later this year uh, i don't know where those came from if it was like parts maker ports from delcam or just you know the fusion team working on what was already there in fusion and making it better but um, most of it was kind of productivity improvements uh, toolpath like fix some scenarios that would normally generate a gouge that you wouldn't necessarily see in simulation um, Lots of like a whole bunch of small improvements to add up to big improvements. What I kind of the gist I got from that session, but um, so yeah, I think turning folks that use Fusion will be happy. And that's it. I mean, that's pretty much all I have for this conversation about Academy. I'll have you know more as the presentations come up. Um, we'll, we'll touch back on announcement that they're available and where to go get them, but. Now I don't think there's anything up. It's probably just like AU. They tend to show up like over the next three months after the conference to get them all up uploaded. Yeah, I think the the takeaway is if you didn't get to go this year, definitely try to attend this next year um, for sure. Like it's a definitely a great event. Um, besides all the things we talked about, it's just a good experience and also just being a, in in the middle of a bunch of people that are like minded is also a really inspiring experience. So I highly recommend it. I'd say if you're a Fusion user and you, you're trying to make the decision between do I go to AU, do I go to Fusion 360 Academy, I would definitely go to Academy. You know, go there first. <laughs> if you're not getting what you want um, or if you need something broader than just, like if you need Inventor content also, you're not going to get that 
at Fusion Academy. You'll get a little bit because HSM is a shared module between the two, but this, you know, this was 100% Fusion, 100% of the time. And if you're a Fusion user, that's probably going to be all you're going to need. Um, so yeah, that's definitely uh, my takeaway from it. I'll be I'll be back every year they have it. So and if they quit doing it here and they have it in Japan and it's in English, I might go there. <laughs> every once in a while, <laughs> not every year. I I would love to go to the Japan one. I, that would be so awesome. Even with airfare, it would be cheaper than AU. Yeah, but I don't know if it's <laughs> in, I don't know if it's in English. So <laughs> that may not may not work for me. <laughs> but yeah. So anyway, that's uh, that was that was a really good. Uh, experience for me and I think it Autodesk did a great job with their inaugural uh, academy here in the US and uh, Alan team I don't know who actually puts those together for Autodesk but uh, this was like I had no problems and it was really really good experience yeah I think uh, if anyone out there who took home the air sensor got pulled over by TSA like me send me a message I like to chat about that experience <laughs> oh and I got to play with the Daytron Neo <laughs> oh dude shout out to Chris like uh, he like that was my first time touching a Neo and he basically taught me how to probe and set up the thing and then he turned away and another group of people came and he was busy talking so I just taught the other guy how to do it because it was that easy. After one experience, I was able to teach another person how to probe the part, set it up, torque it down, hit start and watch it go and uh, it, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, that, that was cool. So um, props to Daytron, they were actually making chips at Academy and um, as was Haas this time, they had a CM1 there, so that was my first time to see that machine side by side with the Neo, which was kind of ironic for me. But, um, but yeah, it was pretty cool. So there, it was like you know a very slimmed down version of the manufacturing floor that they had set up at AU, but it was all the good stuff as far as the CNC machines. Like that's the part I spent most of my time at at AU when I was in the manufacturing exhibit hall, because um, most of the other stuff was just static displays, with the exception of like some of the construction robots that were pretty amazing. But, um, but yeah, so that was kind of good. I enjoyed that. Thanks, Chris. All right, well, you guys got any parting thoughts before I wrap it up? Uh, not really. I mean, aside from the fact that it was a great event, um, I'm actually just legitimately like optimistic about Fusion now. So, I mean, if if there was any one goal that they had for Academy, I think that would be probably the best, just to get people excited about Fusion and to look forward to what they have coming down the pipeline. Yeah, I had a conversation with Winston on the airplane. I was actually about to uninstall Fusion because I wanted to push myself into learning Mastercam. And you can't have two CAM tools because I always end up relying on Fusion because that's what I know. But after attending the event and seeing the kind of things that they're implementing and the amount of work that they're putting into the future of it, uh, it's definitely something that I'm it's more excited about as well. Uh, I'll just have to tackle Mastercam as another skill that I have to teach alongside of that. So, yeah, that's cool. You use Mastercam in your day job? Uh, no, but it's kind of like, like I said, there was that one part I showed you guys, the turbine, and I couldn't figure out how to do it on Fusion, so it, Mastercam might be the only way that I will do that. And I didn't like the idea of me not being able to finish a job because of my... Uh, being not skilled enough with Mastercam, so that's definitely going to push me to figure that out. Um, and it can't, it can't hurt, right, to learn another CAM package, so. Only your wallet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How about you, Winston? You're good? I'm quite good. All right. Well, I will, I will say goodnight, guys. I really uh, appreciate it. We'll be back. Uh, next episode should be normal shop updates, kind of return to our normal uh, format. 
and then I'm going to be off to Germany. <laughs> so we'll see where that goes. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Good night. Thank you all for the very delightful conversation. Have a good night, guys. Good night. Thanks for having me again.